This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. So the big question is, how is this surgical backlog playing out on the front lines? How is it affecting and how will it continue to affect patients? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740, especially if you've had something postponed or if a loved one has. Uh, right now, I'd like to welcome Dr. Shadia Shamala, who is the head of general surgery at Sunnybrook Health Sciences, and Dr. Robert Nam, a professor of surgery at the U of T who specializes in the surgical treatment of urologic cancers. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank, Thank you very much for being here. Dr. Ashamala, were you surprised by the numbers in that FAO report? Uh, the short answer is no. I mean, that's, that's exactly what we're seeing um, at all the hospitals across the province is that um, when, you know, it's, it's a combination of what we've stopped uh, or what we've paused uh, secondary to necessity, uh, but also the directive that came from the government to, to stop all uh, non-urgent, non-emergent surgeries and procedures. I, I mean, it's been a year. Um, and, and it's waxed and waned. There have been periods where we were able to ramp close back to normal, but there have been periods where we are really only doing the most urgent cases. And, you know, uh, at the end of the day, no surgery is unnecessary. No surgery is done um, uh, that, that isn't very important. And so these, obviously, when we stop something that, that is absolutely required in society, there will be a backlog. And, and those numbers don't surprise me at all. Dr. Nam, you had an editorial in the Globe and Mail today, and you argue that stopping elective surgery is the wrong way to go. Absolutely. You know, the, the blanket directive um, is preventing cancer surgeons from providing care. And I believe that we can continue to conduct cancer surgery that doesn't depend on hospital admissions, that doesn't depend on ICUs, and that way we can chip away at the wait list of cancer surgery and we can do it safely and we can do it without increasing the numbers. You're, you're talking about the kinds of surgeries that are day surgeries, but don't they still require a bed and people who are specialized? I mean, a bed for a few hours. I, I, I know from experience. They require nursing support. They require allied health support. And we know that there are shortages and we're asking uh, other provinces uh, for that help. Having said that, though, the ones that are in dire need of support are things like ICU nurses that require highly specialized skills, and you can't interchange them. And there are nurses and other personnel uh, that can still be utilized efficiently and effectively within that limited capacity. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ashamala, do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, the hospital system has moved mountains. I mean, it's it's nothing short of heroic what has happened and what we've seen in the ICU uh, setup. I mean, th- through collaborative work amongst the ICUs uh, being led by the hospital administration, we've basically turned all of Ontario's ICU into one big ICU, um, and, and that's unprecedented. And so, you know, I, I do think that... Um, what we've done in the ICU has, has saved lives, has, has allowed us to not use that triage protocol um, that was, uh, you know, so discussed and so dreaded. Um, but I do think it is absolutely imperative that we use the same um, degree of um, innovation and the same degree of sort of urgency to handle our cancer uh, backlogs and our cancer patients. I, I do agree that, um, that, you know, we need to work together as a hospital system um, to carry on with cancer surgery. And, and, and to be honest, if anyone had sort of said to us a few months back, do you think that cancer surgeries will stop? I, I mean, I think we, we, no one would assume that, you know, certain things that are still running in society would be deemed sort of essential, but cancer operations would not. 
and that cancer operations would be on the chopping block of things that we can uh, pause. I, I think that as a society, we shouldn't accept that. Um, that, that that cancer surgery is something that we can't find a way to continue. Well, the word elective when it comes to cancer is, I mean, it's it's pretty, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. I've, I've got a survey which uh, came out after the first wave out of the UK that said that delaying any kind of cancer treatment for four weeks raised uh, a patient's risk of death by about 10%. And even if you're sort of in, inside, I know that for every cancer surgery, there is a, um, a standard of care for the wait time. But, but even if you're inside that, the level of anxiety, I mean, it's off the charts. Absolutely. Yeah, and-, and hope is a huge thing. And we're taking away the patient's hope to beat this cancer. And Libby, keep in mind, if, if, the, if the government lets us continue these types of cancer surgery that are ambulatory, that don't need ICUs, that's going to prevent those patients from getting worse and needing bigger surgeries that require hospital stays and require ICUs after the operation. So it's just a self-defeating purpose if they don't let us continue with small cancer-type surgeries. Have you seen that? I mean, that is the big fear and the warning that that patients whose surgeries were delayed were going to get worse. Have you actually seen that, Dr. Ashmala? Um, across the system, you know, we know that, that cancer has to be timely. And, and we do know, we see patients all the time whose, whose treatment's been delayed for whatever reason. And we know that the time is of the essence in cancer treatment. And so, you know, across the whole province of Ontario, we have these wait times instituted. Um, Cancer Care Ontario and Ontario Health has set benchmarks and set standards of care that we, you know, as Ontarians deserve and have come to expect. And, and the fear always is that if we go outside of those standards, we don't know what will occur. We don't. Um, and there isn't good studies. Of course, there isn't good studies to look at large patient populations of delay or large patient populations of, of, of non-operative management for what is curative or uh, curable type surgeries. So, uh, I mean, I think at the end of the day, the, the fear is that we're acting outside of what we know and outside of what we have good, strong evidence for. Um, and that's not how oncology works. That's not how we manage our cancer patients. We generally manage them very much based on strong evidence. Uh, but, this is not wait, evidence-based. Wait a minute. If you get to the end of the standard of care waiting period, does it not become urgent at that point? It, it does become urgent, Libby, but, but if there's a lot of patients in that category, uh, then, then again, it, it's a triage. It's a, it's a triage system. And this is where, uh, and this is what's happening across the province at every every hospital, really. Uh, and this is where, really, if if you kind of did a timeline, I think when, when, when levels of government started to speak loudly that there was not triage going on, um, and it was, you know, these were logistical things. They were obviously talking about the triage that happens at the ICU level using that triage tool. But that was the point where every, you know, every cancer surgeon, I can speak for, for my group, every cancer surgeon really, um, took to the, you know, any, any sort of, uh, microphone they could find and, and speak to the fact that, wait a minute, yes, we are triaging cancer care, and triaging cancer care is triaging life-saving intervention. And so to, to sort of talk about not, you know, not, that there wasn't triage happening was somewhat, in, 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 you know, wasn't quite accurate um, in, that, in that we are triaging cancer surgery. Let's take a call from Daniel in Toronto. Hello, Daniel. In that we are triaging cancer surgery. Uh, Daniel, you have to turn your radio down or off. Are you there, Daniel? Uh, yes, hi. Thank you for having me. Um, I have a, a logistical question. Um, so ICU departments typically occupy between 20 and 30% of the hospital, both bricks and mortars and resources. My question is, why is the entire hospital being shut down when ICU occupies a negligible, you know, percentage of the total healthcare system in the average hospital in the province. I'm going to let the doctors answer that. Thanks for your call. Um, I wouldn't say 20 to 30 percent is negligible, but uh, um, what's the rationale, let's say, Dr. Ashamala? So I'll start with 
the hospitals are not shut down. The yeah. hospitals are functioning. We are looking after sick patients, both COVID and non-COVID patients every day. Uh, and we are, we are continuing to do that. So I think the, the first point is we are not shut down. Healthcare is continuing. It's just, it's just being pushed to the absolute limit uh, of what we can do safely. The second point is COVID patients we know throughout this pandemic is about a 5% hospitalization rate and about a 1% intensive care unit rate. So it's not just COVID patients in the ICU that are, that are um, affecting normal flow of hospitals. Uh, multiple wards in the hospital have been, have been transferred or being in, multi, in, in hospitals across the province are being transferred into COVID units, and those are not intensive care units. The uh, other aspect of that is that we are moving patients to the intensive care units when they really hit an absolute need. Um, the threshold for a patient that goes to the ICU is very different now than what it used to be. And what I mean by that is that we are managing patients on the wards outside of the ICU that are uh, very sick. And, and in general, in normal times, those patients would likely go to a monitored setting in an intensive care unit. However, given the strain on the ICUs, that's not been the case. So, so, you know, it's the whole system that's being strained, not just by the patients that require ICU, but by, um, but by all of the COVID inpatients. And then on the other side of the journey, when patients are getting better, they leave the ICU, they don't leave the hospital. Um, and, and this is one of the things that I think I, you know, I, I won't talk for too long, but, but the, the morbidity or, or the, the, the side effect of being in the ICU is, is very extensive. Patients often require a tracheostomy, um, a surgery with a tube in their throat to breathe. You know, there's a long-term sequelae of being in the ICU. These patients will be um, part of the healthcare system for a long time after their ICU stay. So it's not just well they you know they're only in the ICU for ten days what's what's the big deal um, this is th- these patients have become a very significant uh, portion of the healthcare unit across the spectrum. Now the hospitals I know are taking emergencies uh, um, and we don't have much time left but how much discretion is there uh, to decide what's an emergency if the person isn't about to you know die, Doctor Nam? Well, you know, uh, every hospital has uh, committees uh, from representing cancer, heart surgery, uh, at the case of Sunnybrook trauma, which is very specialized, uh, to determine the parameters of what's considered urgent or life-threatening and what's not. And we come to a consensus through team approaches to say, you know, these types of cases, these types of patients are the ones that really need urgent care and urgent surgery, and these ones maybe they should wait. And so it's a continuing iterative process where we continue to look at what we have to manage and then decide on what we can do, maximizing all the resources that the hospitals are able to provide. And this is throughout the whole province. It's not just Sunnybrook. Every hospital grapples with these issues, has these teams that are able to effectively manage care. But it continues to be difficult when you have lockdowns of this nature that uh, just make it difficult to manage. So what I'm taking away from this is that you wish you were still able to perform uh, some of the less complicated cancer surgeries. How do you feel about the backlog? I mean, do you feel like three and a half years to clear it? Really? I would say the backlog is only going to get worse as we continue to continue with this lockdown. I believe that a more surgical approach is needed with the lockdown and let us continue with elective cancer surgery so we can attack the backlog now and we can prevent the cancers getting worse and worse and worse, which puts, in the end, a lot less demand on the hospitals and the ICUs. It's counterintuitive to not let cancer surgery proceed. Uh, Dr. Ashamala, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, we're almost out of time. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. And, and I think at the, at the end of the day, it's not going to be a nice straight line where we just run a backlog and slowly catch up. These patients are all going to present at different times. And what wasn't emergency may become an emergency and, and not just cancer in every aspect of their care. Uh, when you don't operate on someone, you leave them cycling through the healthcare system. And so the entire burden on the healthcare system isn't just their operation. It's the additional tests that are required. It's a whole process. 
Uh, and so, you know, very, uh, in, in, in very simple terms, it won't just be a backlog. It'll be a massive burden on the healthcare system that'll need to be addressed. Okay. We're out of time. Fascinating conversation. And thank you so much for that, Dr. Robert Nam and Dr. Shadi Ashamala. Thanks so much. Thank you, you, Libby. All the best. Okay. That is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It is devastating news for cancer patients, people who need joint replacements and other types of surgeries that are considered elective. That is according to a report by the Financial Accountability Office, and it says that it'll take three and a half years to clear Ontario's surgery backlog and cost $1.3 billion, which is about twice what the province has budgeted, so far anyway. It's particularly unfortunate because in the province, hospitals had started clearing the backlog from the first wave, which was about half this size. It was about 150,000 surgeries, and they had just started uh, clearing it when the second and the third waves hit. So, Uh, What does it mean for all of us and what does it mean for you or your loved ones if you are caught in this? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Peter Weltman, who is Ontario's Financial Accountability Officer. Hello, Peter. Hello, Libby. So first of all, how many procedures uh, does this backlog comprise? So there are two types of backlogs. There is a sur- elective surgery backlog, which the, we think is 419,200, and that's our projection until the end of September of 2021. And there are almost 2.5 million diagnostic procedures <clears throat> in backlog to that period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, d- I didn't even deal with the diagnostic procedures, which, of course, delayed diagnosis. If certainly when it comes to cancer, that is not uh, that is that can result in many bad things. But let's talk about the four hundred and nineteen thousand two hundred procedures. Uh, you're saying that's one point three billion dollars. That's twice about twice what the province budgeted for it, but uh, if it's going to be over three and a half years, I guess they have time to put more money into it? Well, I think it's fair to say that uh, when the government put its budget out, that was before the third wave hit and before the April 2021 uh, order to uh, postpone elective surgeries. So certainly I think their plan was up until that point, and yes, they they certainly have time to, uh, to reassess should they choose to. So the $1.3 billion, just to be clear, 1.1 of that is for the surgeries, and about $241 million is for the diagnostic procedures. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, of catching up, I mean, it is more than a matter of money. You have to have people who can do all this extra work because it's going to be on top of what they would ordinarily have to do. You know, that's exactly the point. We say that in our report that you'd have to assume to get to this backlog in three years is hospitals are operating 11% above pre-pandemic volumes for all surgeries and 18% above for the diagnostic procedures. That is pre-pandemic. I don't know if that was even doable pre-pandemic given the crunch on hospital capacity, which is also stated in the report. I think I'd like to emphasize, too, the report was done to support MPPs when they're in the middle of right now starting to uh, ask those questions of the government and the government spending plans, and that's the purpose behind it. So we've put those in uh, because we think these are, you know, these aren't things that we were able to calculate, and these are, I think, useful questions for MPPs to ask of the government. How did you get to those numbers? We looked at effectively at public domain data. So uh, we've been trying to actually estimate surgery backlog since last spring of 2020 when an MPP asked us to do that. The data was not available. We, we 
checked in with the ministry several times, and the data wasn't even available as early as January, and now the data has become available. Uh, so it's the ministry's data for the most part. And then in terms of the estimate, so we've done, uh, we looked at it, we looked at the, the backlog uh, trend so far, we incorporated the April, uh, the lock, the, the postponement, and we estimated the weekly impact, which is in the report, and then just spread that out over uh, until the end of 2021. And we also have cost per per uh, for proceed per procedure, and that's fairly you know public. That's Ministry of Health data as well. And what does that say? So that's where we get our uh, 3.5. Well, the oh. the uh, 1.3 billion to clear the backlog. So. That's 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 how we calculate it. <clears throat> now, I'm, have, I'm yeah. sure you're aware that uh, elective is often in the eye of the beholder. And throughout this, I think that the definition of elective is anything that's not a life and death situation right now. Well, and that's why I think it's really important for MPPs to ask the governments for some clarity over exactly how the, you know, what is the plan to attend to this backlog? And it's not like the government has nothing else to do. You know, there is a pandemic, it's still raging, and there's a lot going on. But it is an important consideration. As you mentioned, <clears throat> sometimes elective surgery start out as elective and then become emergencies. So, uh, yeah, these, there are definitely lots of considerations around this. Do you have a breakdown of how much of this would be, for instance, cancer surgery? How much would be joint replacements? We do. We have a, a breakdown. Uh, so, for example, cancer surgery, we're assuming the backlog or estimating the backlog at 13,560. It's in our report. So I'm just, I don't, I haven't memorized these numbers. I'm just reading off the report. Uh, we have seen orthopedic surgery, which is knee and hip replacement, around 70, almost 77,000 procedures in backlog. Uh, so there's a, there's a couple there. We have uh, reconstructive eye surgery, general surgery numbers in there as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're obviously, your report doesn't prioritize these things. That'll be up to health authorities? Well, exactly. We don't run the program. You know, we're, we're in, a, in the, <clears throat> I'd say, enviable position of just being able to provide the analysis and say, here's how the program is running. Here's what your baseline or your reference point is. Here's what the backlog is according to our calculations, assuming no changes in how you administer and how you manage. We also assume that hospital capacity will revert back to normal once the pandemic is over. There are about 3,500 surge beds, if you will, that have been put in place. We assume, based on what we've seen in the budget and the spending plan, that those beds will disappear. Um, so that's so. There, there are many ways that can be this backlog can be tackled. You know, one of them might be to keep some surge beds. One of them might be to redistribute how surgeries are done? I don't know. But again, these are great questions to ask of the government. And what about recommendations about hiring people? I know that after the first wave, the plan for clearing the backlog was lots of overtime, keeping hospitals and beds open on weekends um, and things like that. But I, I don't recall that there was, uh, you know, a crunch of people. Yeah, we don't we don't do recommendations like that's that's not part of our our mandate. So um, these are all things that the government could could explain and they could they could also do. We don't estimate those costs. We don't assume that there'll be all the extra hiring, et cetera. We assume everything is sort of a, on an as uh, as you know status quo going forward. And so, what would you like to leave us with on this? I think it's important that. The, these reports are important because it, it gets people to ask the right questions of their MP, you know, get, get your MPP to ask the question, how is this going to be cleared up? How do we know when, you know, isn't, how is the system going to handle it when my elective surgery doesn't become elective anymore? What is the plan? What government is the plan in place to how to manage this backlog, given that we've had capacity constraints in hospitals even before the pandemic? We need to get a better feel for what you're planning to do to give us some comfort that, uh, you know, we'll be able to get looked after. Peter Weltman, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. We are taking another break. When we come back, how is this playing out on the ground? We will talk to a couple of surgeons. And if this is affecting you, if you're worried about it, give me a shout. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 
Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, fight back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. And it seems to me that the bromance among the city, the province, and Ottawa is over. And this phase of the pandemic uh, is uh, marked by Queen's Park being at odds with the other two. And this despite the fact that the vaccine rollout is finally unfolding quickly and reaching large numbers of people. So the Ford government is pointing the finger at Trudeau about our borders, saying we need tighter restrictions and this wave is because our borders are porous. Uh, A lot of people say that looks like deflecting. The municipalities, especially Toronto, and Brampton are demanding clarity and notice on the extension of the stay-at-home order. I mean, I think it's as good as a done deal. We had numerous public officials, including the health minister, saying that uh, we're not ready to ease restrictions. The prime minister just said it. I don't know what more you need. Now, this is kind of interesting to me. The cities. Brampton, Toronto, Toronto's Board of Health, Mississauga, all talking about allowing outdoor activities like golf and tennis. Apparently, it's an issue inside the Conservative caucus at Queen's Park as well. And it does kind of leave me shaking my head a little bit, uh, because how did they allow this to become such a big issue, uh, the science panel and and lots of scientists say that's not a problem and it should be allowed. And the other thing that's pretty clear is that this is a David Williams thing. He has said the problem is what people do before and after that golf game. So clearly it's coming from him. Uh In Ottawa, there are a couple of other big issues. One of them is uh, a bill that would allow a pandemic election being supported by the NDP. I wonder why that is. And the government's attempt at regulating the Internet is turning out to be a fiasco. Let me give the numbers out. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Let's bring in Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and men- Member of Provincial Parliament for Mississauga South. Hi, everyone. Hi, Hi everyone. So uh, let us begin with Charles. Is uh, the provincial government running into real trouble here, or is this just a matter that everybody's tired and uh, everybody wants it just to be over and looking for someone to blame? You know, there's some valid points being made on both sides. There's In this regard, uh, well, there's three sides, I guess, when you include the municipalities. But if we look at the province versus the feds, it kind of reminds me of those stickers that they were putting on those gas stations. You know, let's deflect and let's make this an issue for something that really is out of the control uh, of those concerned. There already is some practices at play that enable us to um, try to limit the degree of spread, but obviously more can be done. And I'm not defending anybody here. Uh, there is some things the feds could do better to close the leisure travel that's happening. And, and, and that's not just to India and Pakistan. That's other parts of the world and the United States especially. Um, so to curb that activity, which could be the places that some of those travelers are coming from, because they aren't coming direct now from India, they may be coming through other points. And I think the mayor of Brampton said it clearly. It's, it's a matter of stopping leisure, stopping if we're in a, a, you know, a lockdown in Ontario, why are we allowing people to travel, and why are we not catching them at other places? Now, the feds are saying, that's fine. The province of Ontario has the right to deny that travel in those uh, borders outside of the, 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 the airports as well, and they can make those, uh, those, in, in, those instructions. 
then the feds are saying, well, we'll do what you guys want, but give us some clarity. Are we talking about temporary workers? Are we talking about agricultural workers? Are we talking about the students that have been approved by the province? These are all other questions that have to be determined. And um, it's a big issue. Uh, it's being politicized, unfortunately, because everyone's under a lot of stress. But it sounds to me, Libby, they're coming back to normal. It's not uncommon uh, for Doug Ford to attack the federal government and the municipalities as he did when he first came to power. But we need to do better. Everybody well, needs to that's do better. A, that's an interesting take on it. Everybody is coming back to normal and and sniping at each other. John Capobianco, uh, again, with this issue of the outdoor amenities, uh, we have all kinds of physicians and scientists saying these activities are not a problem. And yet it has become a big issue. Uh, is that just a matter of the province having allowed it to get out of control, or is Doug Ford just listening to David Williams too much? And David Williams himself is coming under a lot of criticism for a lot of different things. Well, Libby, I think I think what this shows is that there's no right answer for anything uh, during this pandemic, and and it's been a year plus a few months now that we've been into this and. And people are starting to, you know, just lose themselves in, in this and in, in ways that that we're starting to see now and, and politicians included. And, and, you know, just all of us are, are just getting to a point of, of just exasperation and, and being fed up. But but it, things shift. And I've said this before on the show that this is shifting sand, this pandemic. And it always has been from day one. And it's getting even worse now because we're hearing all these competing interests and competing thoughts and and finger pointing that's been going on. I think for the large part at the beginning of the pandemic, everybody was singing from the same hymn book because nobody knew what was going on. And then, of course, as we started getting more and more familiar with this, uh, with the virus and, and with the vaccines coming, I think people started saying, well, this is not being done right. This is not, you know, not not being effectively uh, implemented and so forth. So there's been that finger pointing. And Charles is right to a certain extent that that it is a normal course of action, especially when, you know, you're in election year or election mode, that there's going to be some finger pointing and some blaming as, it, as we're seeing. Now, that said, the one thing I would say is that, you know, you can't win for trying here, because I assure you that if the premier came up two weeks ago and said that he was going to lock down the province, but keep golf courses open and keep certain things, you, were, you, you, would, have, you would have gotten a slew of criticism to say, well, you know, the golfers can go out and have fun and this can have fun. So for him to be able to say, look, we're going to shut this down and we're going to shut this down completely. And, and albeit he did reverse himself on a couple of those issues. But, you know, the fact is the numbers are going down. We're now at the lowest numbers that we've seen in a, in a little while. So we've got to keep this going. But if he did keep those open, he would have been criticized. So the fact that he's closing them now, the public health officials are saying, oh, no, he should have kept them open. Like, that's the kind of stuff that's going on here where you get these competing interests and these competing thoughts, and you can't win for trying no matter if you're the prime minister or if you're the premier of this province or any other province. You're seeing that people are getting fed up with this. They want vaccines. They want to get to some level of normal. The good news is vaccines are being distributed, and, and more and more people are getting um, uh, vaccinated, which is, which is good. And not only for the first shot, we're seeing a lot of the second shots now being distributed as well. Karen, do you agree as shutting outdoor amenities? Did they just have no sense of what kind of an issue it would become? No, I think that um, there's a couple things playing out, right? And and part of it, and I, and I think that the big challenge for Ford right now is that he, he lost his narrative a couple weeks ago. And he's he hasn't been able to regain that narrative. And so what's at play? I think John's right. Like, what's at play is that, oh, so... Privileged people can continue to fly. Privileged people can continue to play golf. Privileged people can continue to play tennis. But, you know, restaurateurs and hair salons and, you know, all those guys are, are, are locked out of, of their jobs. They're not, they're not making any money. So isn't it another case of Ford saying he's looking out for the little guy, but he's really not because he's letting all of these other things happen, meanwhile impacting a segment of society very, very hard. And there's no question that how these restrictions have played out has had different impacts on different people depending on their socioeconomic status. You There's know, no question I, about it. Karen, I, that's interesting, but generally I would say that the people who have always been underlining the the unequal ways that the pandemic has hit are also those who are the ones 
advocating most loudly that the outdoor activities be resumed. I'm talking about the mayor of Brampton, yeah. and I'm talking about some of the doctors. Oh, yeah. No, I oh. agree. And so here he's in a, he's backed himself into a corner. Right? And in, in, in a more normal world, it wouldn't be so detrimental to reverse on this one. But if he seemed to be reversing to the pressures of the golf course and the tennis club, then he, again, he puts his image of someone who's fighting for the little guy further at risk. So I, I think there's a couple of things that are playing out that have absolutely nothing to do with the response to the pandemic and whether it makes sense. This is, he's created his own political issue for himself that only he can get himself out of, and he doesn't know how. Okay. That's interesting. Well, we'll see if they relax any of this because, uh, you know, uh, I haven't quite heard him say it's, this is what David Williams wants, though clearly it's what David Williams wants. Yeah. And I think there is some dispute in his, in his, in his, his cabinet. Like there's those that know if you keep the hair salons closed and all the other restaurants closed and you have to keep the golf course closed. Like it, it could actually be that simple of a discussion in his cabinet. Hmm. That's interesting. You know, I haven't. Frankly, uh, it could be quite frankly, just the fact that anything, you know, if, if he would have, and you've seen this before when he, the color codes and, and he's done everything he possibly could to try to maneuver and, and make things as, as open as possible for those areas that he could. But, you know, and, and but he's always going to get, he's always going to get criticized for something that he's done or not done. And not just not this premier, any political leader now is going to get that kind of criticism, that kind of scrutiny. Charles, moving to Ottawa, the Liberals are rushing through a bill that would allow a pandemic election, and they're getting the support of the NDP. Why would you think the NDP is rushing to support them on this? <laughs> An election is is not something that will do them much good, I, I don't think. Well, these bills do take time to get through the House. I mean, it was presented in September of last year, and you know it's appropriate. They're extending polling days. They're providing mail-in ballots. They're trying to support the long-term care homes and those that can't uh, go to the stations. They're meant to be temporary. But then you've got to find workers and those people to actually uh, do the job. That's also going to be an issue. Um, but it, it makes sense to prepare for a likely election in a pandemic world, which may happen this year, may happen next year, may happen the year after that. We don't know. Um, but uh, I, I see it at that. I, I don't see it much more than saying there's going to be an election this year. They just got to be prepared. And if they don't take these precautions, then they'll be criticized for not having taken the steps necessary <laughs> to accommodate an election under a minority government that can fall any time. So I, I think it's appropriate that they take these steps. John, you're you're laughing, but uh, Aaron O'Toole has said, "Look at them; they want a pandemic election." Well, I was only I was only laughing because I know uh, you know obviously Charles and, and Karen as well because they were as I mentioned they're both very successful politicians and when they were elected and in their day but but they would always take criticism no matter what they did so they understand the fact that you know you could have the best budget in the world as Charles would think that he did and of course everybody would say that it's not and, and this is this is a, <laughs> another example okay I'll, oh, I'll take all, oh. the last one maybe. <laughs> But this is yet another example of the kind of stuff that's going on behind the scenes. And, and I always and I always feel, too, quite frankly, maybe that the media does treat um, the prime minister way differently than he does. You know, if, if it was a conservative, a conservative leader, quite frankly, because look, it was only after four hours of debate that the, that the uh, that, you know, the, the leader, the prime minister, gave notice of the time allocation for, for the bill. Uh, you know, like, what's the rush? Like, if, if he's not sort of. You know, wanting to, to Charles's point about, okay, well, if something needs to be changed, and yes, there should be some debate on this. This is changing the Elections uh, Act, right? This is not an insignificant thing. And you're in a minority situation, so you, you'd want, you'd think you'd want to have the proper debate and the proper discussion, especially because you, you, we heard from the, from the, you know, from the U.S. during their election and the, during their changes oh, that they don't made to their election to that. during COVID. You know, because there was a lot of states that did all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of debate and a lot of anxiety around this. And to cut the bait out, to make it only four hours, and if sort of rushes through, gives one a sense that they're trying to do something to rush an election when everybody, including health officials, are saying we are in no shape and in no position to be in an election anytime soon. Maybe the fall, maybe beyond that. But, you know, and the NDP, quite frankly, supporting them does not surprise me. Jagmeet Singh might as well be a minister in the Liberal government, quite frankly, because he has got, he, he does nothing more than prop up the Liberals. And the fact of the matter is, the Prime Minister knows it, so he could almost, he could almost run this government as if it was a majority. Wow. Uh, 
<laughs> Karen, uh, the liberal government also now, I, again, this is one of those things that I'm not sure it has filtered into people's consciousness, but it is something it affects media. Uh, so they try to regulate the Internet or to regulate the big players by making them follow the same rules for things like uh, Canadian content, but refused to uh, remove a clause about individual users. So the question became, is this trying to uh, limit free speech? And what about people who have a lot of followers and, and make money? I mean, they're called influencers. I frankly don't get any of that. But it looks like the whole thing is a fiasco. Does it matter? You know, it's it's one of those interesting things. It really is. Because when you, you know, take COVID aside, just for a moment. I know it's impossible to think that way. But if we if we look at what the Liberals have done over the last little while in terms of the response to the military, the response to the this this bill, uh, the response to we, you know, they, they've actually had some, they've created their own problems. And th- this bill, honestly, I don't think there's one redeeming feature of it. Like, it really should just go into, like, go back to where it came from for a little while and then be revisited. Because Every time the government tries to explain it, the explanation just gets worse and makes less sense to the <laughs> Canadian public. And when the minister came out and said, well, you know, we don't, the CRTC doesn't uh, regulate Canadian content, everyone's like, what? Of course it's what you do. <laughs> like, what? So there is, it, it's, it's just an interesting thing that the government should just stay focused on the COVID response and put everything else to the side because it's not getting the scrutiny or I think the framework that it needs or the, even the, the strategic why are we doing this that needs to be there in order to justify why this kind of thing would even be brought forward. Charles, do you have a view? Well, there's two bills, I guess. The one that we're talking about now is this one called C-10, and that's the one that, that amends the, the Broadcasters Act. Um, but this is a bigger issue. It's them trying to regulate the big techs, the Googles and the mm-hmm. Facebooks and then, and and Amazon's and the like. And the what's happening in Europe, there's a lot of investigations going around these major social media giants. There's also the Australia model, which is enacting greater restrictions and taxation matters. And this is just one part of the overall uh, regulatory changes that Canada's looking at. But they're taking a wait-and-see approach. They're really looking at what the other jurisdictions are doing to investigate and to uh, provide some of those restrictions. But this particular piece is strange in that it really goes after the privacy issue. And this is where the minister is getting a bit of pushback because he's now saying to CRTC, you will decide those thresholds of, uh, of people that are engaged in, say, YouTube and so forth to determine if it's a broadcaster or not, even if it's an individual. And then that's free speech, and it's, it's imposing upon people's freedoms, and this is a part that it's getting him into trouble. Hmm. Well, and, and not to mention that the CRTC is really not at the forefront of how um, modern-day social media is changing media at large. And so to suggest that the CRTC can come up with any kind of regulatory framework which to guide this issue, even if it's... I don't even know if it's an issue. Like. Yeah. I don't even know what problem we're trying to solve here. Hmm. Well, yeah. uh, the problem, the the big problem are, are the Facebooks of the world using content from Generated from our media, media companies yeah. without paying, without for, paying it, for it, while exactly. legacy media is struggling. But uh, that's the issue, is how do you support legacy media? That's I think that's the issue that we should be focused on, because I think that is actually a critical issue. And this is exactly what they've been talking about. Uh, that's why Google and Facebook and Silicon, you know, those those uh, jurisdictions are wondering what's Canada. What is Canada going to do re- relative to what's happening in other parts of the world? And uh, you really the think they're issue. wondering? I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't I, I doubt it too. And, and I think too, Libby. It, it also, you know, again, it, it, there's a lot of influences that come from the states, right? And especially because what the debates happening down there with respect to what, what the, um, you know, what, what the Congress is, was wanting to do or trying to do with, with, the, uh, with some of these social media outlets, right? And I think a lot of them sort of acknowledge that, look, these are private companies, right? And as private companies, you're allowed to do certain things and you're allowed to do it. And, and, it's so, and we as consumers can opt in or opt out. But the problem is, is that the influence of these social media has become so intense and so into everybody's lives 
that there's got to be a need to create a level playing field with respect to these, these streaming services and, and Canadian broadcasters while protecting at the same time our rights and freedoms. And I think that's where that, that divide is, which is, okay, create a level playing field for all of these potential, potential services, but yet not limit the, the, the person's individual right and freedom, but freedoms. But what we're seeing in the U.S., where they're individually blocking, you know, the president and others and, and, and this kind of debate, I can, it filters up into us and into Canada. So you get this message that what they're trying to do is they're trying to limit certain things with respect to these big social media outlets. But here we're just trying to put legislation that gives the CRTC more power. And to Karen's good point, I'm not sure they should be the arbiter of this kind of stuff because I'm not sure they're equipped to do it. And quite frankly, more regulation is not what we need. We just need to make sure that there's a level playing field that everybody understands the rules by which everybody should be playing at. Mm, well, I don't know. Uh, there's certainly not a level playing field now. But no. moving right along, Karen, uh, yesterday John Tory was clamoring for clarity. I don't know how much clearer it has to be. We have David Williams, again, Chief Medical Officer of Health, saying cases will have to fall well below a thousand before restrictions are lifted. We have Christine Elliott uh, basically saying the same thing. Uh, so what, what more clarity do you need? Well, I think that um, the mayor is getting some pressure around what we've talked about is the tennis courts, the golf courts, the outdoor patios, because people are, you know, wondering, you know, because we're hearing lots of things, we need to get to 75% for first dose. We need to get numbers below a certain threshold. And, um, you know, are, is that is that what it is? And then, you know, because there's been so much start, stop, open, close, you know, order food, hire people, fire people, throw out the food. So I, I think that from, from the people that are have been impacted, they're pressuring the mayor to get some clarity. I think you're right if you were to ask, like, my facility is not opening, but I like to think I can still plan for camps in July. So I would like to get some clarity around that. I'm not getting any, and I'm probably not going to get any. But from a business that's been impacted, knowing when I can start to resume is is top of mind every day. Hmm. Uh- Charles, uh, do you think that the government is in a position to give any more clarity than they already have? I mean, the whole thing is a moving target. It, it's so dysfunctional, isn't it? I mean, there's John's book about the perception that Doug Ford is trying to avoid, which is supporting uh, those more affluent over those that have less access to some of these playgrounds for adults. Kind of, it's the same idea. I mean, he re- he retracted playgrounds for kids. Well, golf and tennis and so forth, in most cases, are playgrounds for the adults. And based on science, it would say, yeah, you should keep these open for the purpose of having mental health, having uh, fitness, and able people to be outside, because that's not where the, the pandemic is, is coming from. But at the same time, um, he has to be sensitive, obviously, to the, the issues that I think John spoke about, and certainly... The mayor, well, I know that they're calling for more opening of some of these outdoor activities, but what happens now? You have uh, hiking areas, you have parks, they're full of people, and and it's no different than what would be the case in a golf course, probably even less, provided you restrict them from going into the bars and so forth thereafter. Hmm. John? Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm sort of aligned on this. I, I think again, it, it it shows the kind of pressure that that the leaders are getting, and we always talk about you know the prime minister and then the premiers, but also uh, we've mentioned the, the mayors and, and at the municipal level, you know, some of the work that's being done not only in Brampton and Mississauga, but also our mayor here in Toronto, who I thought has been who I think has been doing a phenomenal job trying to keep the balance between all the other two levels of government and what they're trying to do and how it affects Toronto. And and I think the fact of the matter is. The reality is that, that Toronto's numbers are the highest. So whenever we, we record numbers in Ontario, you know, 70% of them come from, I would say, Toronto and Peel, quite frankly. But so the mayor, I think, is trying to do his best to sort of, you know, get that clarity because he's getting the same level of pressure from businesses and, and, uh, and, uh, and citizens, obviously, who want to do certain things. But again, you know, the, it comes to, the reason why there's not that much clarity is because you're getting all these competing interests from the health officials and from the celebrity doctors who are on TV every day saying they one thing and, and, and that, that's what's causing the confusion. So, you know, I think all of these political leaders are trying to do their best. And I say that about the prime minister. I say that about the premier and the mayors, uh, given the information that they're getting on a daily basis, which is changing not only from the Canadian context, but also worldwide. 
Mm-hmm. So where does this leave us? I mean, we're not far off the uh, Victoria Day weekend or the May 2-4 weekend. Uh, <laughs> Charles, what, what do you think the, the big issues coming up will be? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And um, I'm kind of happy I'm not there to make those decisions right now. <laughs> <laughs> because these are tough things to deal with. And, uh, you know, are they going to extend the lockdown? Uh, I mean, the numbers are coming down, uh, but obviously the variants are still a concern. And it's great to blame other levels of government, uh, but we all have a job to do to try to ensure that people are safe. And what happened yesterday, I think, uh, through the city of Toronto, when they went after the big uh, party that was happening, hundreds of some odd people in a bar, you know, playing it up, they were right to clamp down on those instances, especially when it's in a closed environment. Um, but, you know, I see other parts of the world, in Florida as an example, they're all outside, and they're all, they all seem to be doing better than we are here. And they're getting their vaccines, and they're taking the steps that they need to do to protect themselves, but they haven't had the same degree of concern and certainly of, of, uh, of, of, of problems that we've had here. I um, I think there'll be an extension to the lockdown until such time as the airports and other areas are under more control. Um, but I think they will ease up on uh, on people being outside. And Karen, yeah, I think they're going to extend the lockdown beyond uh, the Meiji Four weekends because I can't imagine giving the the go ahead for everyone to get together on the long weekend, be it camping or cottaging or playing tennis or golf. I mean, I hope that that gets restrict those restrictions do get lifted because I think that that just makes sense. And it comes back to ensuring people continue to buy in to the restrictions that are actually left in place. Because when restrictions don't make sense to people, people then ignore them. And I think that that's a danger as well that the government needs to be mindful of. And, you know, again, I think that when Theresa Tam came out and said 75% of people have to be vaccinated before we can lift restrictions, and I think maybe that was not, maybe that was not very helpful. Because yeah. looking around the world... There's um, there's sort of there's different evidence that maybe that could happen before we reach 75%. And and 75% is an ambitious goal, given that our vaccine hesitancy still exists. So I think that there is some requirement for the government to be thinking about what does, you know, what what do our vaccination rates need to be at? When can we start thinking about opening up patios? When can we give some further clarity around um things happening and, and put some markers in place so that we know where we're going together. Because again, right now, there is no, there is no clear path. And, and I get there's shifting sands and things are changing. But, you know, based on the world experience with our vaccine levels going up, our numbers coming down, you know, when can we put that line down to say this is when we can expect to see some restrictions even? Hmm. And the Prime Minister was just talking about a one-dose summer, whatever that means. Whatever well, that means. Whatever that means. Everybody, have a good week, and thanks so much. Charles Souza, John Capobianco, and Karen Stintz. Thanks, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Okay, we will talk again soon. Right now, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we will be talking to the financial accountability officer about his take on the extent of the surgery backlogs, which are truly frightening, frankly. So uh, if you or a loved one have had a surgery postponed or something like that, give us a shout to 416-360-0740, toll free. 1-866-740-4740 and we'll be right back with Peter Weltman. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.